0: Amen, and thank you, worship team, for ministering to us so well. Even though we've read the text, if you do have your Bibles, I would invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians 13 as we study this morning. And as you're making your way there, let me bring to your mind a phrase that many of us are familiar with, putting your money where your mouth is. The concept, of course, being that when all is said and done, there's often a whole lot more that has been said than has been done. This type of living is antithetical to the Christian life that we're called to live. We're called to be doers of the word and not just mere hearers. We find ourselves often at the crossroads of the ideals that we believe and spout, but then having the challenge of living those things out. How many times do all of us struggle to live out what we believe? We say something with our mouth, but when it comes to getting something done, well, that, that's just a very different story. I know that I can find in my own heart the ability to just generate and produce excuses as fast as I can breathe sometimes when it comes to living what it is that I say. The Christian church, however, is full of great and marvelous examples of those who've gone before us, who have lived out their faith, even when it is incredibly challenging. I want to share one such story of of a people putting their money where their mouth was that, that is found in Joseph Hellerman's book, When the Church Was a Family, He tells the the story of Cyprian, who was an early bishop of Carthage, thinking North Africa around 250 AD, about how his congregation responded when some Christians were taken ransom, were taken hostage during a worship service. And raiders had come into the church grabbed all of these rural Christians and sent a letter to the big city writing for a ransomed demand. It's almost fascinating to just consider the issue that we see in this text from this history from what happens in Israel but, but notice how Cyprian writes to this church family, how he writes to them about how his congregation is going to respond, where, where he and the congregation are going to put their money where their mouth is. He says, it caused us gravest anguish in our hearts, dearly beloved brothers, and indeed it brought tears to our eyes to read your letter, which in your love and anxiety you wrote to us, but our brothers and sisters who are now held in captive hands. We must now accordingly reckon their captivity to ours, ours. Our brethren of our captivity also. Sorry about getting that next up. And we must account their distress of those in peril as our own distress. For I need hardly remind you in our union we form but one body... And therefore, not just love, but our religion ought to rouse and spur us on to redeem brethren who are our fellow members. If I could just make an observation. I'm not sure that any of us would write that powerfully communicate such a love so dearly and jump to action so quickly as these early church Christians did to their brothers and sisters being held hostage. And not only did they jump to the moment, they sent the ransom, but, but listen to what follows in this letter as he explains and pours out his love and the love that they had. Accordingly, we are... Let's see if we get that there. Accordingly, we are sending in cash 100,000 sestercerers. I don't know how much that is today's money. I got to believe it's a lot. Which has been collected from the contributions of the clergy and the laity who reside here with us in the church over which, by God's favor, we have charge. Now listen and lock on to what he says here. It's, Our fervent wish is indeed that nothing similar should happen in the future. That our brothers, under the protection of our Lord's majesty, may be kept safe from all such perils. So, hey, we paid the ransom once. We're hoping that this works out. But if, however, in order to test and to examine the faith and the charity that is in our hearts, if anything of the kind should befall you again, do not hesitate to write word of it to us you can be fully confident and assured that whilst our church and all of the brethren here do pray that this should never occur again, yet if it does, they will willingly provide generous assistance. I'd say that's putting your money where your mouth is. To, to show love, not only in helping pay the first ransom, but, but to pay any future ransoms that should occur in this particular body, the church. This morning, we're studying and continuing our series on being the church. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13 because we're considering what does it look like for a body, what does it look like for us, the church, to show an observable love. We just read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, and what I hope with our time that we'll have this morning, that we'll see three realities of love that we can live out as a church family. The first one that I think that we'll see is this, that there is an absolute necessity when it comes to demonstrating love. Let me read again for us those opening three verses to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and I do not have faith, so, and I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, before we get into this particular text, let's remind ourselves of the the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul was writing, if you remember, to a very divided church. They were fighting over everything. They were saying, oh, I'm of Paul. I am of Paulos. And those really spiritual people were saying, well, I'm of Jesus. The problem was here, Paul's not addressing the the divisions that exist. He's already handled that. He's addressing other problems that existed in this church. The Corinthian church was, you could just call it the hot mess church. They had everything going on that was wrong. One of the major problems is they loved the flashy gifts. They they loved the sign gifts. They they loved the speaking in tongues. They loved the miracles. They they loved those things, and it had gotten out of hand. And so Paul, by divine inspiration, writes to the church to, to set down not only rules governing those things but help them to see, as we read at the end of chapter 12, something that's far more excellent than the showy gifts. Now, he would even go as far, as they loved these these showy and flashy gifts, to write to them in the next chapter, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. That's a pretty strong rebuke. I think if I got up here and just said, church, do not be children in your thinking, you might be like, he doesn't have the authority to say that. You might want to run me out of this church. You can't talk to us that way. But Paul saw that they had been futile in their thinking for the love of the flashy gifts. Commentator Gordon Fee, and I'm sorry that it's so small, he helps us see what the problem was here. He says, possessing charismata, you can even hear where we get charismatic churches for today, it's not the sign of the Spirit. Christian love is. They, that is the church at Corinth, speak in tongues to be sure, which Paul isn't going to question as legitimate. We would say that that has died out from not only this text but others. But at that time, it was a legitimate activity of the Spirit. But this church, at the same time, they tolerate or even endorse illicit sexuality, greed, and idolatry. This church, they would spout wisdom and knowledge, but in the former, they stand boldly against Paul and his gospel of a crucified Messiah, and in the latter, they're willing to build up a brother by destroying him. Lock on if you were confused by all of that. In short... They had, spiritual, they had a spirituality that had religious trappings, asceticism, knowledge, tongues, but they had abandoned rather totally genuine Christian ethic with love, with, with its supreme love. Now, as I said, we would argue that speaking in tongues, it's not legitimate activity for today. We have the, the completed word of God. We don't need it anymore. But, but just lock on to what he is saying in the argument Paul is saying in verse 1 through 3 for a moment. Just, just picture it for a moment here. Pastor Bill was up here speaking in tongues. Now, I know that's, that's an illustration, so don't look for it too far. It's not really going to happen. But just imagine he's up here speaking in tongues in a, in a foreign language, and he does it without love. How, how does Paul compare? He's doing this miraculous, this powerful thing. What does he say it is? It is a noisy gong. That's what that would be. Or just imagine for a moment that we got like a really smart guy up here to deliver the sermon. Not not me, but someone who's really smart. and, And you could just throw any Bible question at him that you wanted. Any passage. He could just unfurl it for you. But he did it without love. The text says he's nothing. Paul even takes the logic to the most extreme. Okay, you're going to give away all of your belongings. You're even going to surrender your body to be burned. And, and I don't think that was like an illusion that Paul wasn't really thinking about. I mean, this was the day when Christians were actually dying for their faith. And he says, you're going to surrender all of these things, but, but you do it without love, you gain nothing. Beloved, these words should send shivers down our spine this morning. The centrality of love in the Christian walk is not, it's not a nice cherry on the top of the cake. It is the entire substance of the matter. Without love, everything that you say, everything that you do, without love... Everything is useless. I hope that my own heart, I hope that your heart soberly and seriously considers that for a moment. I hope that we would become a church that, that has this observable love that we're talking about this morning. That, that sure, we, we might have Sunday school classes, you, you might even teach one of those classes. You might be on the worship team, the video team. You you might serve as a greeter. You might be in the youth group. You might be doing all of these things. But listen to what the scriptures say. That without love, you gain nothing from those things. Love is needed. It is necessity of the Christian life and our text lays out three ways one in our relationships with one another when we look at how the the world organizes relationships it it does it in a very different way than how the church organizes its relationships it's usually around certain other loves like like the love of sports and you get two guys who love basketball, love football, love baseball. They could talk it for hours. Or, or the love of particular hobbies. I've been informed that it's deer season and that some of you love to hunt deer. Not quite figured it out yet, but there's a deep love. I've even seen it. You get two deer hunters together and you're like, we need to pry you apart. The world organizes around the color of skin gender intelligence income other interests the point being that they say it's the love of these things that brings them together but that is not how a christian community is formed that that's not how the church is brought together It's love built in our relationships. We see this in 1 John 4, 19 through 20, coming from the apostle of love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That might be a convicting text for you here this morning. There might be people here in this room, in your family, at your work, where, where, where you would say you hate them, but the evidence is clear that you do. The essential nature of love in relationships. That begins to beg the question that if if we're talking about love, we're talking about the necessity, the centrality of love, then we better at least make sure we understand, well, what is love? Commenting on this passage, Gordon Fee says, To have love, therefore, means, and lock on here, to be toward others the way God in Christ has been toward us. To be loving means to be toward others the way that God in Christ has been toward us. I don't know about you, but that is a tall order for sure. To be toward others the way that God has been toward me. I'll be the first to confess, I fall short of that standard so many times. In my marriage, in my parenting, in my relationships with you, I fall short so many times to, to be toward you the way Christ has been toward me. It's an opportunity for us to see ways that we can grow. I think one of the ways that I've at least seen it here is, is how you do relate to the body. It's not all bad news. In fact, this past Wednesday, I enjoyed being around for Awana. And as I saw the the various activities happening that night, I thought, this is a group of people who are loving the way Christ called them to. Whether it's your teaching and leading because you gave up your Wednesday evening uh, to love children in this church and to love children in this community who aren't your own. It was a great expression of love. There's all kinds of examples of love because we see that it is needed, it is necessitated in our relationships with one another. And so could I encourage you, based on the argument of this text this morning, to examine where you might need to grow in your love in your relationships? And that this this love would be the type of love that is described the the way Christ loved you. That that you would love that way. So it might be in your marriage. it might be in your relationship with your children. It it might be in the relationships in this church. but, But that you would see that you're called to live a life of love. And that if someone didn't know Christ, as they watched you love... They would see that there's something special. There's something peculiar. There's something different about the type of love that this individual shows. I'm not minimizing, well, I'll do the dishes tonight, honey. I'm not minimizing that type of love, but I'm talking about something perhaps even more sacrificial. Or when it comes to in this body of believers here that you would consider, how do I love sacrificially? It might be. For those of us who are younger, looking for ways to serve those who are older. For example, you heard us mention in the announcements the the rake and run. What a great way to use the strength and the energy that the Lord has given to us to serve those in our congregation and even in our community to love them sacrificially. Or maybe you fall into the category of senior saint or older individual That you would look around at the various young families here in this congregation and say, I've got some love to give. Uh, I've got some love to show. Uh, For example, my wife and I, we were invited by a senior saint uh, two weeks ago to their house for dinner. And I just want you to know, if you invite me to dinner, I'll come if our schedule's available. You cook for me, I'll show up. I have no problem doing that. In fact, somebody even this week called the church office. He was driving by, didn't have any lunch plans, said, hey, do you got any lunch plans? I said, you can buy me lunch any day of the week. But this couple had us over, and then they, they knew that we had left Lafayette and that we didn't have any family nearby. And they said, hey, if you ever need childcare for a date or whatever, you just let us know. We'd be happy to serve you in that way. I said, what are you doing on Friday? Or they were willing to love us in a sacrificial way. So, so maybe you could use those gifts that the Lord gave you to serve in children's ministry on Sunday morning. I, I think it's a great place for seniors to serve. I mean, especially in the nursery. All you got to do is hold them and bounce them a little bit. And some of you have hearing aids. If they get too loud, just, just turn it down and you'll be totally fine. The point is, how are we loving as a church family? Or you've, or you've heard us talk about the capital campaign. I have a feeling that none of us in the, in the month of January this year said, you know, I've just got a lot of money sitting around. I wonder what I'll do with it this year. I just, I just need to get rid of some of this money. And yet, we're seeing a way that we can love. There are new families coming. There are families here who are having children. We, we want to take our children's ministries to the next level. And so we're considering and praying about doing a capital campaign to, to expand the facility so that we can expand our ministry and outreach. You've heard us talk about Commitment Sunday, and in a few weeks, you'll actually receive a, a capital campaign brochure, and it's going to have this, this commitment card in there that you'll be able to use to indicate, here's what me and my family will do. We've encouraged you to spend time praying about this. We, we want us to bathe this in prayer, but, but at some point, God's children have to make commitments. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that God is a God of commitments? He's not playing it by ear. Well, we'll just see how this works out with him. God is a God of commitment. He made commitments before the foundation of the earth. It is not a far walk between God being a God of love and God being a God who makes commitments for his people. So we'd encourage you to make those commitments and have those ready by November 12th. There's also nothing wrong with us doing our best when it comes to this campaign and trying to show love. <clears throat> we, we've set a goal as leadership, but there's nothing wrong with us trying to set a goal and us coming up short. I, I don't think that that offends the Lord as long as we've tried and we've done our best. What I think offends the Lord is if we didn't actually make those commitments, if we didn't actually try. It's a great example. This church, we're trying to live a life of love. we see the necessity of love for our relationships with one another. And so we're taking the next step. Love is also required for ministry in this church. You, you cannot do ministry right. You cannot do ministry well without love. Listen to Pastor John MacArthur on this particular passage. It is easier to be orthodox meaning your thinking and your understanding of the scripture is right. It's easier to be orthodox than to be loving. It's easier to be active in the church than to be loving. Yet the supreme characteristic that God demands of his people is love. Love is the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. And so in order for us to do ministry in this church, we do need facilities, right? We, we, we need organization. We need all of those kind of things. But, but the thing that is essential for this church body to do ministry is that we would have a love of one another and ultimately then we would have a love toward God. So we've gathered this morning. Many of us have professed our love towards the Lord in our singing. <clears throat> It wouldn't be surprising to me that in this gathering alone, that there would be people here who would not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. But that's not the group that necessarily I'm thinking about this morning. There could be amongst us, this could even be you, a person who's, who's made a profession of love for the Lord, but, but you have grown cold. You've grown like the church at Ephesus where John writes the words of Christ. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's an opportunity for all of us to consider, is that where I'm at? Sure, I might be tending church regularly and faithfully. I, I might be studying God's word every day. I might be devoted in prayer, serving, doing all of the right things. I might not even be engaged in the obvious and big sins. But the point of this text is reminding us that there has to be love when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Or elsewhere in the book of Hosea, God says it this way, I desire your steadfast love and not sacrifice. Perhaps one of the most important things that you can do today is to take a spiritual inventory of your love. That your love toward God and your love towards others in this church and outside of the church. And to ask yourself, do I see that that love is needed? That this toward others the way Christ has been towards me, that it is needed in my relationships here in the church and toward God. Now, the text also tells us about the activity of love. As we read in so many of your Bibles, they'll they'll render the text this way. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own ways. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but, but rejoices at truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, the way that this translation, and, and many translations render it, is, is love is almost described as an adjective. But in the original text, love is put together as verbs. Now, what do I mean by that for a moment? An adjective, in case you've forgotten. I know you guys came to, to church this morning for lessons in grammar. I know that that's why you woke up this morning. But, but an adjective describes something. It describes a person, place, thing, or idea. So, for example, when you, when you go to work tomorrow and someone says, how was the sermon yesterday? And you say the sermon was boring. Boring is the adjective in the sentence. The verb was was. It's a, a verb of being. But if you said the, the, the preacher, he, he preached a long sermon and boring Preached would be the verb in that sentence, meaning it's, I'm trying to draw out and to highlight to us this morning, Paul is showing us that that love is an activity. He's not describing the various ways in which love looks like. He's telling us this is love lived out. Another way that could be translated is this way, love waits patiently, love shows kindness, love does not burn with envy, does not brag, it's not inflated with its own importance, it doesn't behave with ill-mannered impropriety, it's not preoccupied with the interests of self, it does not become exasperated into pique, doesn't keep on reckoning of evil, love does not take pleasure at wrongdoing, but joyfully celebrates the truth. It never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, it never gives up. The point being, and you've probably heard this before, love is an action. And love is described, but love is also shown, this is what it looks like. Because we have to remember that that right theology Beloved, it is, is no substitute for love. Religious works are, are no substitute for love. Nothing substitutes for love. Christians, we have no excuse for not loving. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We don't have to manufacture love. We only have to share the love That has been given. High words. And high calling for sure. We don't have to manufacture the love. We only have to share the love. That has been given to us. And what the text does. Is it it breaks this down. Into seven biblical examples. Of what love does. Love is patient. It shows patience. To others. And you might have said to yourself. And said to others look. I've got a lot of gifts, but one of them is not being patient with others. What you're saying is I'm not going to show that gift of love. I understand that that expression of love, that it may not come naturally to you, but God still calls you to show, to demonstrate love by being patient with those around you. And and we most certainly need that in a church. Or we're told that love, it acts kindly. This is actually a really interesting word. We don't have time to trace it through the scriptures this morning. But but just even notice how Christ uses this particular word to describe what it means to to follow him. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because being kind, it's the, the counterpart to being patient. To be kind means to, to be useful, serving, and gracious It's active goodwill. It not only feels generous, but it is truly generous towards others. It does not only desires others' welfare, but it works for it. And so how often... When we look at our own lives, do we see examples of patience coming forward? How often do we see others when they're in need? Do we show kindness? I'd encourage you as we continue to walk through this list to to take a spiritual inventory of your own life and to ask yourself, okay, where do I need to grow in, in putting this kind of love on? Where do I need to grow? Maybe I need to grow in my patience with my wife and my children. Maybe I need to grow in acting kindly to those at work. The text also tells us that we rejoice in truth. That's one of the activities of love. So many times, and this is true of myself, it's true of you because the scriptures will tell us that it's true. If we're honest, we love, when we hear bad news, we love to rejoice in that. Proverbs 18 puts it this way. The the words of the whisperer, or sometimes it's translated the gossip, they are delicious. They're like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of our body. There is a, a tendency in all of us not to rejoice with the truth, but to rejoice with evil things, that when we hear evil things, to celebrate those things... The text also tells us that we're to bear all things. When we think about our relationship with one another, we're to bear it. This means to cover or to support, to protect. The love bearing all things by protecting others from exposure, ridicule, or harm. A genuine love doesn't gossip or listen to gossip. Even when a sin is certain... Love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. You might have even described yourself at certain times, well, I'm just a cynic or I'm just a realist. The Bible calls for you and I in our relationships with one another and even our relationship with God to always believe the best. To always consider someone innocent until proven guilty and to see that that is an expression of love for one another to hope for all things, to to buy faith, to walk, and to to believe that, that God is working and doing something and to endure all things. So many times in our lives, if we're honest, we don't like a love that has been called to endure. We're happy to cancel those, to reject those, to remove those who hurt us, And God says that the true sign of love is a person who endures. Endure was a military term that was used to describe an army's holding of a a vital position at all costs. Every hardship and suffering was to be endured in order to hold fast that position. And so love holds fast to those it loves. It endures all things at all costs. It stands against the overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing or stop believing or to stop hoping because love will not stop loving. And so to look for areas in your life, where do I need to put on love, but but also to look for the activities of what love is not. The scriptures call for us to put things off as well, such as envy, So when you see someone in your life who might have more worldly pleasures and treasures or or their life is going a certain way, the Scriptures call for you to put that off because that sort of thinking, that sort of activity is not love. Or to boast about the gifts that you have received. Paul would write earlier in this book in chapter 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you receive it, why do you boast? Love does not boast or love is not arrogant. It doesn't show off the gifts that it has and try to put down other people. It's not rude. Love doesn't snip others away and and try to boast itself up. It doesn't insist on its own way. How different would our marriages be? How different would our churches be if people stopped insisting on their own way? How many times are our arguments and our fights and our quarrels all about me insisting that I get my way? So this is not love. It's not irritable. How many times when we bump into someone else, does our anger, our irritability come out? Or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's a big and it's a powerful list for sure, beloved. But if we're to be the church, the thing that we're talking to be, then then we must have love that is observable, that we can see, that is measurable and tangible. And Paul gives us what it is and what it is not. And for all of us, there will be things that we're called to put on today and things that we're called to put off because it's going to be essential for our relationships in the home our relationships at work, our relationships with extended family, and our relationships here in the church. Lastly, the text reminds us of love's eternal endurance. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes the partial will pass the partial will pass away when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child and when i became a man i gave up childish ways for now we see in a mirror dimly but then we will see face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. There will be a day, beloved, when we do not need faith. As we sang, our faith will be turned to sight. We won't need hope because in the kingdom of heaven, all will be made right. But love will endure to the end. In fact, even in your own life, when someone has showed you radical love, the love that is demonstrated like Christ, when that person has showed you love, I'm willing to bet that that has stuck with you. Even when all sorts of details and small things of life have evaporated, when someone has showed you great and powerful love, you remember it because of love's eternal endurance. So congregation, let us remember here today that we need love. Love is not the the thing on the top, it is the substance of the thing. And that whatever we do, if we do it without love, then we are nothing. Let us see the eternal endurance of love and let us see the, the very particular and measurable ways that the text calls us to love and calls us to put off. And let us do those things even today. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we come before you today and we confess that as we read and study a passage like this, that we fall incredibly short. That we fail to show love to you and to show love to others the way that this text describes So often we're so focused on ourselves and the way that we would live that that we fail to see this call. I pray that we would be a people who would see our need to change and that we would. That we would grow in showing love to those around us and that this church, that we would be such an example of love that this community would see it and recognize that there is something different. And that difference is the love that you have shown us in Christ. As we go from here, Father, help us to be showing love in the relationships that we have, all so that we could glorify you and win others. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.